0: You guys can have a seat. If you got your Bibles, we're in Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapters 11 and 12. I realize that sounds a little intimidating. Just try to think of it from the pastor's perspective. It's real intimidating, two chapters. Today. If you have your paper Bibles, that's where we are. If you have your mobile device and you have the Uversion app on your mobile device, you can go there. And in the events menu, you can find Emmaus Road Church, and my sermon notes are there on the event page. And so you can follow along if that helps you. If you're a reader, if you listen better when you're reading, feel free to do that as well. We're in a series that's 13 weeks in Nehemiah so far, and we've been talking about this concept of building in faith because there's this crazy parallel to the church in this book of how God builds his church, and especially when you're a new church plant like we are in the middle of year three, there have been some really interesting parallels, and so I want to start this study in Nehemiah 11 and 12 this morning with a confession. When I first began to work on this sermon this week, I was totally overwhelmed. Totally overwhelmed, not just by the fact that it's two chapters I decided to take as a chunk, but I found it to be nothing but an unending series of hard-to-pronounce names. And, and we've had some of that already in Nehemiah. And I just kept saying to myself, what am I supposed to do with this section of Scripture? And then the Spirit reminded me of two convictions that I hold in my heart as a first priority. And the first one is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture, it's a funny word in the Greek, all. It means All. And all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed by God. That's the first conviction. The second conviction is I am responsible as a pastor to declare the whole counsel of God. I don't get to pick and choose. And if it's in the Bible, it's there for a reason. So we're not going to skip these chapters, though I will tell you this morning we're not going to read all the names out loud either because uh, there, there are some wonderful discoveries to be made here uh, in these genealogies and these lists of names, even though they look about as interesting as a telephone book. Um, but uh, but we don't have that kind of time together today. Um, but I will say, if you look at the clues in some of these genealogies, there's some really cool stuff there, and you just gotta dig a little bit to get to some things of interest. But chapter 11 and chapter 12, This is the account of Nehemiah's actions in repopulating the city of Jerusalem and dedicating the wall as all of Jerusalem celebrates this victory. So remember uh, that though the city wall has been rebuilt at this point, Nehemiah discovered that he had a problem. He has a capital city, uh, but without hardly any people in it. And and so his solution here is gonna be to draft families to move into Jerusalem because the capital needs to be inhabited since it's the heart of the nation. So let's just jump straight to the text. Nehemiah 11, look at verses one through three. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 To live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, Everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. Now you're, you're gonna go on to see in, in chapter 11, verse four, all the way through chapter 12, verse 26, the list of all those people. So, so verses one through three kind of give you the synopsis. The, this next section unpacks all that. And again, we're not gonna take the time to read that section of scripture, not because it's unimportant, but because we have a limited time together. But if it's in God's word, it's important to God. These people are acting in faith, right? To move, to relocate in response to God. And that's a big deal, right? But the challenge that they're facing is an underpopulated city, That's the challenge facing Nehemiah right now. Nehemiah is aware that there's a problem. It needs to be addressed. And I think he's been pondering this really uh, since the completion of the wall, maybe even before. And it's important for us to note that the problem could not be addressed before all the spiritual reformation work had to be done in chapters eight, nine, and 10. Right? There's no sense filling the city with inhabitants unless or until the people that are already in the city are, are vibrantly following after the Lord with their whole hearts. And, and I don't know, I was just thinking this week, there might be a lesson in there for us as a church plant. There might be a lesson there for us. There's no sense in filling a church with people unless or until the ones that are already there are walking closely with God. So we need to press in. Didn't Jesus say about stewardship that to him who's faithful with little, more can be trusted, more can be given? And so it makes me pray, even this week, praying for our church, requesting that God would reveal to us uh, where we're not ready for more, if we're not ready, what, what he needs to do among us to make us ready for more. And I hope that you'll join me in praying those prayers. But this first section Uh, 10 to 24, verses 10 to 24 of chapter 11 is a picture of God's provision for the ministry of the city of Jerusalem. If you're gonna fill the capital city with people, you need ministry happening there to maintain the spiritual strength of those people, to care for them, right? And so verse 12 says there are 822 of them that carried on the work in the temple, offering sacrifices, performing the rituals. Verse verse 13 tells us there were 242 men set aside as the head of families. These guys function in pastoral care role. Um, counseling families, working out problems, caring for families. Verse 14 has a third group of 128 called brave warriors who were trained to fight in defense of the city. I love that. Priests with swords. I'm all about it. If you've been to my house, you've been in my office, you know that already. I have lots of sharp objects. I'm all about godly people with sharp things, right? And this should encourage us as the church. Some of these priests are functioning, what we would call the New Testament role of deacons, and and we even have in the New Covenant deaconesses, right? And and so they were in charge of uh, of just common service stuff, uh, building maintenance and caring for the needs of other people and, and on and on and on. And then you've got this group of musicians, to whom God has gifted great talent and skill. By the way, you do understand that music in the church is not for our entertainment, right? I just want to make sure we're clear on that. It's a means by which our hearts are fed and strengthened and helped, and a means by which we are bonded together in those moments where we're singing in the same way that when you're sitting there watching the Sounders game, or you're at the 50-yard line at the Seahawks game, and everybody's like, yeah! And you just feel like you're one, Right? What worship does for the people of God? There was a moment a a few years ago. I had the opportunity. I was still a worship pastor in another church, and um, there's this uh, Christian music couple, the Gettys, Keith and Kristen Getty. They are modern hymn writers, and they're incredible musicians. And they happened to be up the road at Emmanuel Baptist in Mount Vernon, and there was an invitation to worship pastors and wives to come to a special luncheon. So there were a hundred worship pastors and their wives in this room with Keith Getty, and he's at the piano. He said, I've been working on this hymn and it's it's rooted in this old hymn. You, You all probably know this hymn. And he begins to play. And every person, pastors and wives in the room, all the worship leaders began to sing an eight part harmony, this old hymn. I don't even remember what the hymn was because about three seconds in, I couldn't sing anymore. I was weeping. I was just weeping, sitting there because I was in the middle of the room and I could hear everything, and I was just overwhelmed with the music. And we just don't, don't underestimate the power of God's people lifting their voices as one in worship. This is a big deal here in this text, and we'll talk more about it uh, here later. But back to Nehemiah's purposes. The lack of a population base here is a big deal because there's a city to defend. They built a wall and walls are great, but enemies can scale walls or enemies can tear down walls if there's nobody defending them when the city is attacked. And so uh, not only do the walls need attention, the city needs defending, the temple needs attention, it's understaffed, the worship of God is a priority. And so the, so the whole thing is, like I think we get it in our minds, like the wall's done, woo, we can kind of sit back and relax and have a cold one. And it's like, we're not, we're not over the finish line line yet. They're not over the finish line yet. The wall was a major part of getting there, but it's not the end game. Building the wall had built their faith up in God, but faith is never stagnant. Faith is never in a place of stasis. It's either growing or it's shrinking back. It's either strengthening or it's weakening. They had worked out their faith muscles to get ripped like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? But now they were getting flabby, flabby. I just do these things to make sure you're paying attention. You understand, right? You could say uh, Nehemiah enacts a voluntary draft. Does that work? Voluntary draft? I realize that's an oxymoron. Oxymorons are apparent contradictions. just like the term congressional ethics. Um, But in this case, it was a draft, sort of, but it wasn't compulsory. So one out of every 10 in the suburbs would move into the city if their name was drawn. So in a group of 10 families, you roll the dice. Actually, there's one die with 10 sides. And if your number came up, you moved to Jerusalem. And if, and if you didn't want to move to Jerusalem, you could opt out and they just go down the list to the next family, right? So this is, this is to underscore the theme of this passage, which I believe is that God wants willing volunteers He doesn't want compulsory uh, adherence to his agenda. He wants willing hearts who want to freely obey him and serve his people. God wants his people first here to be willing to move Willing to relocate for the sake of God's kingdom expansion. I, I love that our, our our little church here in the first three years has testimonies of people who are willing to move. We've got the McAllisters with us who who in the early stages before we ever publicly launched from Athens, Georgia, said, We're packing up and we're coming across the country to help you guys plant Emmaus Road. And we said, You people are crazy. Get out here as fast as you can. We need crazy people. And they came. And, and we have a family like the Irigs, And the Irigs were halfway to Granite Falls, living out on the far side of Arlington and coming in and they, you know, they just said, God's called us to be a part of this faith family, but we really need to be closer so we can serve the community that he's called us to. And they, they, they in faith, put their house on the market and boom, like that, it sold. And they had a house and they were here in Stanwood and it was, it was just like all of our heads were turning. It was just a whirlwind. They moved, they, they moved in faith, they were willing to move. I think about CJ and Chloe Reese and others willing to move their church home to, to see the kingdom expand, to say, yeah, we, we've got a great church, we're really comfortable here, but we really feel the spirit moving us to, to move in response to God's prompting to, to do more for the kingdom. And, and it wasn't a preferential move out of selfish reasons. There's, there's not a lot of programming in the church plant. We're not a, there's no big sexy rock show here, right? It's so funny because, there's there was a couple of churches in Stanwood when we first started said, are you guys gonna steal all our sheep? And we said, there's really not a lot of concern that your sheep are gonna come here because we're gonna ask your sheep to set up and tear down and do a lot of stuff and there's a lot of work to this and and I don't think they're really, they're not really looking for that, right? And so th- those other pastors said, oh yeah, okay, yeah, good, good. So this is, this is a, you know, it's just God's w- people being willing to move I had a conversation with a family uh, we know in the Arlington community, seven kids gearing up to go overseas on the mission field. And I'm like, whew, with seven kids, they're headed to the mission field. This is important for all of us to wrestle with. It's important for every one of us to wrestle with this because God may call some of you to the mission field. Already in our congregation, Josh Warren and Piper, they're engaged and, and Josh is called to missions, right? Um, at some point, Emmaus is gonna plant another church in this region and God may call some of you to go and be part of that church plant and we all have to be willing to move when God wants us to move, when he tells us to move. God wants his people to be willing to move. So let's, let's keep going in the text here. Nehemiah, we're, all, we're already all the way over in chapter 12, verse 27 at this point. So, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. Modern translation would say, drum kit, full band, electric guitars, right? The whole deal. And screaming babies. We love them. We love them. We just dedicated her. It's good. You're dedicated. It's cool. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites and from Beth Gilgal, from the region of Giba and Asmarath. I know I'm mangling some of these names. The singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the walls. And so Nehemiah says, I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, and I appointed two great choirs and gave thanks. And so one of them went south, and and here's where we get bogged down in some of these names again. Uh, But certain priests' sons in verse 35 with trumpets went with them, and Zechariah and and others went with them. And so we're skipping down um, to verse 37. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them on the stairs of the city of David, on the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east side. And the other choir, verse 38, of those who gave thanks, they went north and I followed with them uh, w- with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and the gate of Yeshana, Yeshana and the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of 100 to the sheep gate. So they came at a halt to the, to the gate of the guard and both those choirs then uh, of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. So, there's, so the procession of these choirs, and, and the text actually indicates in the Hebrew that they're singing as they go, right? And Nehemiah is with one of them, and they're going up and around, they're kind of working their way around the city to meet at the place where the temple is in the city, and, and I'm, I'm kind of looking, if I'm, if I'm Nehemiah, I'm looking for Sambalat and Tobiah, and be like, <laughs> right? Just, they, they, they didn't want any of this to happen, I'm looking for them in the crowd, I'm sure Nehemiah is above that, but I, I wouldn't be. And um, and they get there, and in then, then verse forty three, they offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So much raucous rejoicing in the city over the presence of God and His blessing that this is being heard miles away. We think we've got the the, the corner market on loud fans, and we can cause minor earthquakes you know, at CenturyLink Field, but this, this blows that away. God wants his people to be willing to move, but he also wants them to be willing to rejoice. Remember that God tells us through the Apostle Paul, he's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Not a lot there by way of self-esteem building, but definitely gives us context for our lives, so if I, if I asked you right now to close your Bible or turn off your mobile device and begin listing for me the names of those who served as gatekeepers or singers, and we, we didn't read them so you get a pass, but who were the song directors who led the praise? Could you tell me? I studied this passage all week. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't list those people for you. And you probably couldn't either. But just because their names are not known to us doesn't mean that they're insignificant, especially to God. Their roles are important. They, they did what God wanted them to do and they are remembered for it. So, so keep in mind, God uses the weak things of the world to confound the strong, right? First Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, whole passage there about being the last kids picked for spiritual dodgeball. That's us, Right, so God God chose Abraham, a childless old man, to be the father of nations. God chose Moses, uh, this shepherd uh, for 40 years in the wilderness, so afraid to speak in front of people that, that he, he, was, he made God angry because he didn't want to do what God was telling him to do, to lead the slaves out of Egypt into a land that would be their own. God chose David to be the king of Israel. This is a kid so small, ruddy, and insignificant that when Jesse's sons were summoned by the prophet, Jesse didn't even call David in from tending sheep. Why would you, why even call that kid in? He's nobody. God chose to bring his son into the world in the most unusual way. Born to a lowly couple, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a feeding trough. He chose to let him die on a cross, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And he chooses still today to use people just like you and me, who seem insignificant by the world's standards. Who are we? Who are we? He gets all the glory. We're insignificant by worldly standards. Here at Emmaus Road, we put the fun in dysfunction. Why would he choose to use us? It's crazy. It's crazy. He's so good. He gets all the glory. So for all these reasons, we've got to be willing to rejoice. We rejoice that he chooses to use us. It's amazing. So God wants us to be willing to move in response to him and willing to rejoice in response to what he's doing. And then let's keep going here, verses 44 to 47. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them all, uh, the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields and towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God in the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all of Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portion for the singers and the gatekeepers. They set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So, God wants His people to be willing to move. He wants His people to be willing to rejoice, and He wants His people to be willing to serve willing to serve without acclaim without fanfare faithfulness not fame he wants faithfulness the motive of the heart is what matters to God the truth is if you seek fame and recognition for what you do in the church as part of the body of Christ you're probably going to fail at it And if you're a leader, you're probably going to fail at being a leader. If you're looking for acclaim and recognition and fanfare, you're probably not going to get it. Matthew 6, 1, Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then, if you manage to do it, he says, you're not going to have any reward from your father in heaven. You'll have received your reward already. God sees what we do, even if other people don't. He saw fit to record these names in the text of scripture that mean absolutely nothing to us. They mean nothing to us. But they mean something to him, and that's what matters most. And if you find yourself sulking or getting angry or for a lack of recognition as what you do as part of the church or as a mom who's a stay-at-home mom with little kids or as a dad who's working uh, 40-plus hours a week to provide for his family, just look to Jesus. And remember Matthew 6.1, I'll read it again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, in order to be praised by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There's a grace that allows us to rest in the identity of God as El Roy, the God who sees us. We know that he sees us, and we rest in that. But did you catch the order here? Because God wants his people to be willing to move, willing to rejoice, willing to serve. So the first thing you gotta do is get uncomfortable. How many of you just love getting uncomfortable? No hands. We don't, we don't love discomfort, but you gotta get uncomfortable, you gotta get out of your comfort zone. So when we kinda stubbornly kinda dig our heels in, God will lovingly push us, he will move us, he will prompt us, sometimes uh, physically, sometimes emotionally, sometimes spiritually. You'll, you'll be compelled by the Spirit of God, if you're a child of God, to start moving towards something that God loves. I'm developing this passion for missions and I, I never thought I would love missions. I'm, I'm developing this passion for the, for the unborn. I never thought, well, what is God doing in me? Or maybe it's not towards something he loves. You, you start to develop a passion that's opposed to something that God hates. That is so wrong oh man, I, I never saw it that way before. Gosh, suddenly I'm really, I'm really seeing this and it's, 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 it's bad. I don't know what to do with that. But you see, God just begins to stir our hearts and he begins to move in us that we would be willing before him. And then you find yourself praising him and rejoicing in him and delighting in the grace of obedience and marveling at the growth that you're experiencing in your heart and and as you're growing, then suddenly you find that you're ready to serve. You're ready to to serve the body of Christ because you're filled with God's love and you don't need your name in lights because you know that God sees you and that he rewards those who diligently seek him and that his right hand are pleasures forevermore, says the psalmist. And so now suddenly you're not worried about what's here and now because you're storing up treasure in heaven. You're willing before God to move and to rejoice and to serve, and now you're being used for the kingdom. And so this series we've been in Nehemiah for these weeks is building in faith, and it points us to these parallels with the church. What's happening in Nehemiah is a prototype of what happens in the church, and it occurs to me that God is also a builder, right? He's a builder. Scripture says that he's building up a city that's gonna have inhabitants, and it's called the New Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. It's not like the old one made of bricks and stone, but it's a new city of spiritual stones, living stones, intended to be inhabited by redeemed people. In fact, listen to what Peter says, First Peter 2. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, very precious and chosen. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what is my spiritual sacrifice? It's your willingness. It's a heart that's willing. It's a heart that says, I don't know quite what to do, Lord. I'm not sure what my gifts are, my strengths are. I'm not sure how you can even use me, Lord, but I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing. What did David pray in Psalm 51? He said, Lord, give me a willing spirit to sustain me. Give me a willing spirit that I, I would obey you and walk in faith. God's building campaigns are always built on willing people, willing to move, willing to rejoice, willing to serve. Paul Paul would say to the Corinthian church, he would say in 2 Corinthians 8, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now listen to what he says about those churches. Listen to this. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in great wealth of generosity. That equation does not match up. Let's stop and go over that again. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, well right there we've got a problem, don't we, as Americans? They were being afflicted and they had abundance of joy. Does not compute for most of us. And they were in extreme poverty. And then, he, and then he has the audacity to say this. Those three things resulted in an overflowing of a wealth of generosity on their part. How does that happen? But by the Spirit of God. For they gave, he says, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, they gave of their own accord. And they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They knew that there were other impoverished followers of Jesus and they begged Paul, please let us give you more to help them. And this was not what we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God. To us, You see, in the Bible, time and time and time again it's the importance of cultivating a willing heart, a willing spirit. And I, 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 don't, um, I don't think Emmaus Road reflects this statistic, but in most churches, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And we're not there, we're, we're, we're not where we should be. And then to make matters more complicated, and I'll just say this to you honestly, we're talking about a willing spirit, I don't want crotchety volunteers. You know what crotchety means? Calcified. Just, just, oh, uh, uh, just, just picture the most obstinate old old man on a walker. Obstinate. Back in my day, we didn't do things like that. that 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 kind of crotchety, right? Just crotchety. I don't want volunteers like that. I don't want to have to manage crotchety people word here is willing, not begrudging. Willing, not disgruntled, not frustrated. The thing that's so striking about all these names in chapter 11 and 12 that we didn't read is that they were willing to participate, willing to serve, willing to move, willing to obey the Lord, and they did it all with great joy. And my question is, are you willing this morning? Are you willing? Are you filled with great joy? Are you ready for the ministry that God has called you to? If I were to ask many of you this morning how a person goes into ministry, I'd probably get answers that include things like Bible college, seminary, serving in a staff position faithfully for a season, getting ordained in the church. But all of those answers would reflect an erroneous view that is deeply entrenched in the hearts and the minds of God's people here in the USA. You see, Jesus said, through Paul the Apostle in Ephesians, that that Jesus was the one who gave to the church, first the apostles, and now he's given pastors, teachers, and evangelists, and here's what those people do. They equip the saints for the work of ministry. One of the most unpopular verses in the American church today. That the job of the pastor, if there are evangelists here, teachers in the church, their job is to equip you to do ministry. Not to do all the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the answer to the question is, how does a person go into ministry? Well, they get saved. They come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then they're called to minister boom no graduate degree needed they just need some equipping and that's most of that's on the job training and all of God's people should be engaged in ministry but we don't think about that often enough and generally only when you know uh, for me only when we lose a member of our congregation who goes to be with the lord do i stop and think about this reality that we are standing in a line of people So We're talking about ministry, we're talking about being willing, but we stand in this line of history. We stand in a long line of saints who've come before us, and by God's grace, many who will come behind us. And most of the time, we're just just fixated on our place in line. We're just focused on this little bubble that we're in, in the flow of redemptive history. Not aware that it was the willingness of so many saints who came before us who opened the door for us to experience what we're experiencing. Not aware of the fact that what we do in faith now opens the door for the people who are coming behind us to experience the things that we're experiencing. We're not aware of our place in redemptive history. We just kind of fixate on our here and now bubble. And to quote Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire it was always burning since the world's been turning, right? But the, God's kingdom plans predate creation they go beyond this earth to a new heaven and a new earth, and we stand in the stream of his redemptive grace. When we refuse to willingly move, rejoice, and serve, we're like toddlers standing in a torrent trying to hold back the flood, Just get that image in your mind of a little two-year-old in a lot of swift moving water determined to keep the water from moving. That's a ridiculous picture and it's a danger to ourselves and to those around us when powerful streams of living water are moving and we are refusing to budge. We've got to be willing to move and to serve and to rejoice. And that principle applies to the church today. We're all called to ministry. As soon as you put your faith in Jesus, you're moved into God's new Jerusalem. You're asked to labor there with the spiritual gift or gifts that God has given you for the building up of his people. But you must be willing to do it. It must be done willingly. Let me tell you why really quickly. God does not force us to do anything against our will. Because it has to be done out of a heart of love. And love can't be forced. It has to be done out of a heart of love. But listen to me. If you want respect and honor here at Emmaus Road, then discover and begin to utilize the gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given you for the building up of the kingdom. That's how you get respect and honor here. Jerusalem is more than stone walls and a temple. And the church is more than brick and mortar. I know this is nothing new for you regulars here at Emmaus Road. It's the people of God. God still requires sacrifice and service on the part of those who follow Him. That's how God chose to make the body of believers function right. So here's what it takes: it takes money, it takes time, it takes teachers, leaders, singers, servants, gatekeepers, people who organize good. That's not me. I don't organize well. People who aren't afraid to stand up in front of other people and some people who are afraid to stand up in front of other people who like to work behind the scenes. It takes people who work on projects alone who are go-getters. It takes people who love to work on projects in groups. It takes people who are willing to sacrifice and serve. You see, God still just calls normal people, normal people, just ordinary, normal, everyday people who love him and who are willing. And he's calling you today. Will you respond to that call in faith?